0: Welcome back everyone. Mark might've mentioned last week that I'd be here. So here I am. Um, I think Mark will be alone next week and then after that we'll kind of tag team the rest of the way and just a nice excuse for me to get to know Hebrews better as well. I like to think of this letter actually in connection to one of the Sunday readings we just had was Jesus meeting the disciples on the road to Emmaus after the resurrection, right? And he opened the scriptures, you know, and all that it said about how the Christ had to suffer. And I like to think of this letter to the Hebrews almost as this those words, you know, inspired by that moment. You know, this might have been what they were talking about all along the way. So I think it's a very appropriate Easter reflection for us uh, walking along that same way. So let us pray together. Opening our hearts to the Lord and his word, as we say in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord Heavenly Father, your word is living and effective, sharper than any two edged sword. So we ask you to send forth your word upon us, to pierce our hearts, to remove whatever is not of you, and leave only Jesus, your word from Before all time, send forth your spirit upon us. Give us those gifts of wisdom, of understanding, of knowledge, of counsel, to peer into your mystery and to find your life that you have waiting for us. We ask all this through Christ our Lord, amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Well, as a bible study all i really want to do is open up to the letter of the hebrews really to walk line by line and just see where our hearts are see what comes up uh, do so in a prayerful way so whatever whatever scriptures you have in front of you uh, to find your way there to hebrews chapter three up there on the powerpoint all that it's going to be is the very words um according to the NAB translation, the one that we use often in the liturgy, so we might have different translations before us. Every translation is a traitor. They say in Italian, it's actually the same word, tradutore. Every traduzione, It's it. Every translation is a traitor. So, um, of course, we have, to, we have to look deeper, look beyond just the words and, and find, you know, what the writer wanted us to to see we read first therefore holy brothers sharing in a heavenly calling reflect on jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession we read that again therefore holy brothers sharing in a heavenly calling reflect on jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. Ask you first. Why is Jesus called an apostle? Here. You're aware of the New Testament, the Gospels, you would think the apostles are the 12, right? He appointed 12, he chose 12. So why would Jesus himself be called apostle?
1: Okay, Jesus was
0: traveling along with the 12. Certainly. He was he was in the group. But of course, he's above them, right? He's he's far beyond just another one of the 12. And if you yeah, look at the very word apostle. You know, as the father has sent me, so I send you, right? Jesus himself is the apostle from God, the apostle from God. Actually, there's a a beautiful moment, and I kind of want to read it from Mark uh, that I'll go back to. Uh, Mark chapter 3, verse 13, when Jesus sort of gives his mission to the apostles. You can kind of read then, if Jesus is the first apostle, what is he really giving to these 12 apostles? What does it mean to be called to be an apostle? So Mark three thirteen, it's the mission of the twelve. Jesus says, he went up the mountain and summoned those whom he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, that they might be with him, and he might send them forth to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. And he calls each and every one of them by name. And so you reread that thinking about Jesus as the apostle and kind of what happens. He went up the mountain. You know, Jesus, who is from the mountain, from the heights, from that place of encounter with God, the mountain throughout scripture is always that place of intense encounter with God. Moses will encounter God on the mountain. The prophets will often encounter God on the mountain. Jesus will call people to himself on the mountain. And so he himself is the one who, who is that encounter with God. And he summoned those whom he wanted. And that's that's kind of a beautiful phrase, right? That Jesus wanted the apostles. He, he loved them, he chose them. Where Jesus himself as the apostle of the father, is wanted, is chosen by the father as well. You know, the father loves the son, hands over everything to him. And Jesus returns that love to the father. They came to him. So the apostles kind of return that wanting, that desire back to Jesus. Jesus returns that desire to the father. And he appointed 12 that they might be with him and might send them. And there's that kind of twofold motion Two-fold mission of the apostles isn't just to be sent out, but to also come back and be with Jesus. And so Jesus as apostle is also one who is sent forth from God, but is also with God, with the Father. He's meant not just to go out, but to bring back. Uh, so it's just kind of a beautiful image there of what apostleship means, you know, to be like Jesus, <laughs> who is the one sent from God, but with God, who is the one who was wanted was chosen, who was loved from the Father before all ages, um, to get to be a part of that. Uh, that's what apostleship means. And so I think it's wonderful that, yeah, the author chooses uh, to name him apostle, name him for what he is, because he very much has in mind, yes, there are other apostles, but they're only apostles because of Jesus, the apostle, the ones. As the father has sent me, so I send you whoever receives you receives me. So it kind of works backwards as well. Whoever receives someone who has been sent in the name of the Lord. Receives from this same chain of apostleship. So I just I love all that. And that's why I include this this icon. Uh, This is the icon of three apostles. You could say of the Old Testament three angels. This is the moment when Abraham, in the old covenant, you know, coming out of his his homeland and wandering in a land he knows not. And three messengers come to him. And he recognizes in these three messengers that God is actually trying to speak to him. It is God who is addressing him. And so this artist sort of did a little play on the scene and he depicted these three messengers, these three apostles, these three angels, in, in a sense, as depicting actually the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, funny, like you, you think about you know all three of them, equal size, equal shape, equal in all things, equal in majesty, Father, Son, and Spirit. But these two sort of bowing in a show of reverence to the first. So actually, this one is thought of as the father. Father who is in the house, you know, he has the house, the father's house, there are many dwelling places. And also the father who has the least amount of blue showing, (laughs) you know, the blue is a color of divinity. And, you know, it's not easy to see the father. Father has to be revealed. So the father is revealed in the sun. And, you know, this is traditionally thought of as, you know, God, the son who bears the red of sacrifice And who chooses the cup? You know this moment. In is mystically thought of as the moment when. In the Trinity, you know, the son is chosen to be sent. The son is chosen to be the apostle, the one who will accept the chalice, accept the cup that the father will give him uh, to drink of that chalice to save all of us. And then the spirits. Consenting as well. The spirit who wears green, a color of life, color of growth, one who helps us. And also, sort of sitting here at this gap, right? This table has four sides. We sort of sit on that fourth side, you know? We sit there as invited into this communion as well. So, again, all of that just based on, I guess, Jesus, who is the apostle. But uh, what a beautiful thing to say. Um, And high priest of our confession. You know, you go to confession, <laughs> you go before a priest, you make a confession. One thing that you gotta remember. Confession isn't just confessing sins. You now we think of that confession means to, to say our sins, but that's not really what you're actually confessing when you come to confession on the you confession. You're confessing your faith. In God, that he will be. He has given you such a high priest that will take away your sins. You're confessing his infinite mercy and his grace. Um, So, I guess uh, we'll read it one more time, and anyone, I guess, who just feels, you know, something else, drawn to anything else, invited to just speak up and ask a question. Otherwise, uh, we got, you know, of course, a lot more verses than just verse 1. So, um, turning back to Hebrews. Therefore, holy brothers, sharing in a heavenly calling, reflect on Jesus, the apostle, and high priest of our confession who was faithful to the one who appointed him just as Moses was faithful in all his house. But he is worthy of more glory than Moses as the founder of a house has more honor than the house itself.
1: He is worthy of more glory.
0: Pick up on that point because glory. You know, what do you think of when you think of the word glory? It does. Do any images sort of arise in your heart? Just think of something that just is full of glory. Maybe there's a movie, <laughs> Epic Charge of the Rohirrim, The Lord of the Rings. It's what I think of. A song. The sun is full of just the brilliance. Okay. Brilliance and light. Yeah, you think of just natural things sometimes, just the heavens proclaim the glory of God, right? They just this shining forth, this brilliance. Well, you're not alone. You're not happy. Yes. (laughs) Because indeed, glory is often just pictured as this sort of brilliance, this light. And so I sort of bring come back to this image um, of the transfiguration. The transfiguration is that sort of midpoint in Jesus's life, right? When he lets his apostles here, they are Peter, James and John, you know, so awed by this glory that he lets them peek at, you know, who he is underneath. You know, a lot of times this glory is hidden from our face. You know, we don't get to see the full glory. We see behind a veil. We see as if in a mirror. But Jesus allowed his glory to shine forth. And he says he has a glory more than Moses. And so what does that refer to? Well, there's a moment in the book of Exodus. So, you know, if you wanna, gosh, follow along as I jump here and there and everywhere. (laughs) You know, Exodus 34. Ah, uh, even 33 will be in 33 before. Exodus thirty-three eighteen. 18. Uh, there's this moment when Moses, he's received a lot of the Lord's instruction on the mountain. He's received the 10 commandments. We've already had the golden calf in that whole episode. It says, Moses said, please let me see your glory. Let me see your glory. Isn't that a desire? of every human heart. We just want to see God. And if we saw God, we saw what he was like, everything would be okay. We would understand what all suffering, what everything else is for. Please let me see your glory. And the Lord answered, I will make all my goodness pass before you and I will proclaim my name Lord before you. I who show favor to you, to whom I will, I who grant mercy to whom I will, but you cannot see my face for no one can see me And live. No one can see me and live. That's always kind of a a harsh word from God in the Old Testament. It seems like no one can look upon the face of God and live. And live this mortal life any longer, right? To look on the face of God is already to begin a different kind of life, an eternal life. You can live this earthly life no longer. So perhaps that's why God, you know, has to have us pass through death you know, this end to this earthly kind of life, to actually be able to see him as he is. There's another, uh, the rabbis would talk about, you know, why God only showed the back of his head. You know, he didn't show his face to Moses, only the back. And part of that is, you know, when you look at someone's back, back of their head, you're following them. Well, God is telling Moses, I'm taking you to a place I want you to go, I want you to follow me. But then again, he doesn't get to see his face. It's only in Jesus that we see the face of God. But after this moment, when Moses gets to see the Lord and speak to him and have the Lord's name pronounced to him, it says, skipping to chapter 34, verse 29, that as Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the covenant in his hands, he did not know that the skin of his face had become radiance he spoke with the Lord. So it's kind of remarkable just being in that presence of God, this glow sort of goes with him as he comes down the mountain. One thing, you know, I want to share, you know, when I was, gosh, middle school and these people would come to do retreats for us. And I saw those high schoolers that were just full of joy. They had this glow about them, this Almost tangible glory. I didn't know what to call it, but I guess now I can call it glory. They had the glory of God in them. Uh, Saint Irenaeus. I'm gonna even write this on on the board. It's worthy to be written down. Saint Irenaeus is a father of the church. You know, in those early centuries, speaking on
1: the Christian truth,
0: and he put it this way: the glory of God is man alive and the life of man is vision of god so that always sticks with me cuz i think of those those people that have really shown glory when you just you look at them and you say they have glory they have a joy they have this light that i want how do i get that how do i see god so the glory of god is man fully alive so moses shares in some of that some of that glory rubs off on him and he shares it then with everyone that he goes to. But of course, in Jesus, we have one who's worthy of more glory than he. So I love to look at the transfiguration and imagine, you know, what were Elijah and Moses speaking with Jesus about as they were there in that moment. And you have to think that it might've been this very conversation. And that's what Peter, James, and John heard. And that's why they were so in awe. They said, oh, Moses was speaking to you, Jesus. You know, we think of the God of the Old Testament as different. It's not true. The God of the Old Testament is the same God of the New Testament. And Jesus is the word of God. So whenever God of the Old Testament speaks. We can consider Jesus, you know, being the voice behind the words. Moses was speaking to Jesus. He received that very same light that they saw in the transfiguration. And that's what made his face glow with that brilliance. But Jesus, of course, as founder of a house, has more honor than the house itself. We're gonna to come to what that house is. But one thing, you know, in Hebrew, the word house has so much more meaning than just a building. You know, house can mean anything from temple, the house of God, you know, the temple can mean anything from a palace, you know, House of David, sometimes it's called. Or like a dynasty, a kingly dynasty, David's house, you know, extends all the way through his sons, his sons, his sons, whole dynasty, whole kingdom. be thought of as this house. So Jesus, the founder of this house, he comes to build a house. He's built his house, which is the church. And we'll see that in the following verses. You know, it's his temple, it's his body, it's his kingdom. All the above. So he has more honor than anyone that's a part of the house. Moses, a part of that kingdom. Right with yeah, and definitely in the sense, you know, dynasty, you know, being the the sons, the sons, the sons, the son, everyone who's in that house, house of David, Joseph belonged to the house of David. Yes. Mark, I might just need like ten verses or so. Um, You know, that, that might be all you can assign to me from now on.
1: I don't know about
0: you all, but I'm okay with staying the night. Yeah, (laughs) okay. That's
1: right.
0: And then I know that there's some treats back there, too, so I'm just trying to find a segue to get those as soon as I can. Yeah. So, again, this house, right? This is kind of where it, it talks about, you know, we are that house. We are built up as living stones into this one body, one kingdom. Every house is founded by someone, founder of all is God. Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant to testify to what would be spoken, but Christ was faithful as a son. And I think that that is just it's just pure poetry right there. You know the difference between a servant and a son in a house. You know, our relationship with God is not as servant. You know, For, I I kind of use maybe the example of Islam, you know, an Abrahamic religion, you know, rooting in Abraham, their father. You know, this is probably the greatest difference between the two. Um, You know, Islam itself means submission, you know, which, you know, there's a certain Christian virtue of submitting to God's will, obeying as well. But they would never consider God as father nor themselves as sons. You know, that's that's too bold a claim. The scandalous claim. To say that we could have such a relationship with God is that. And so this is the real boldness of the New Testament, really. You know, the real scandal of the New Testament that God would make himself. One of us, a son of man. So that we in turn could be. Sons of God. So Christ was faithful as a son placed over his house. And we are his house. And again, by house there, yes, is living stones in the building of the church, but also, you know, a part of his dynasty, you could say, a part of his family. Uh, the temple of God, you know, temple of the Holy Spirit, as it says elsewhere in scripture. I feel like I can say, as it says elsewhere in scripture a lot, because Hebrews itself, the writer doesn't feel the need to... Uh, to actually quote where in scripture he found these you know sometimes we joked he might not have even known you know <laughs> like he just said oh it says somewhere in scripture you know <laughs> um it's almost humorous the the way he kind of throws it around so somewhere in scripture it says that we are temples of the holy spirit it's, we are his house if you yeah if you want to go on adventures they, they, like a lot of your bibles might have these little Alphabets, you know, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, and then it'll send you somewhere else in the Bible, go on a little treasure hunt. Yeah, and make all the connections. I mean, you could end up going all over the place if you're not careful,
1: so. The little stuff. Oh, yes. Exactly.
0: I actually, maybe I'll I'll take a little time to to show you this. I usually read with with my phone handy. I have a little Bible app open and it has a little search bar. So, you know, you come across a word like house and you just type in house. And then it'll show you every verse in all of scripture has the word house in it. So you got to be careful because sometimes if you don't put in, you know, enough, you're talking about thousands of verses, right? You know, but you know, just a little cruising through this, right? Matthew has the household, yes. They went into the house, you know, whenever it says the house, a lot of times in Matthew and Mark, it's actually talking about Simon's house, the house of Simon Peter. So that's the first house that sort of Jesus is invited into uh, in that early ministry. And so it almost becomes the symbol of the early church. It's the house. Peter's there, right? You know, kind of the beginnings of Vatican City right there. You know, it's the first little Vatican. Um, and that the house always kind of being that, again, very much connected to this idea of we are that house. So more than just the building. Um, you know, th- in this language, oh, hold, you know, hold fast to our confidence and pride and our hope. So you may have talked a little bit about the author of Hebrews. You know, maybe it's Paul, maybe it's not. This is at least very Pauline language, so we—it's we, probably associated with Paul in some way, you know. You know, pride in our hope, boasting is the word to boast in our hope. Of course, Paul will talk about I boast only in you know Jesus Christ and Him crucified, you know, and this hope will not disappoint because the love of God has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that's been given to us. So there's this confidence and this hope again, this glory that those high schoolers somehow had that I wanted. And I just wanted a piece of, how do I get that glory? The glory of God is man alive. How do I live my life fully alive?
1: Oh, yes. Oh, what is it? Yes.
0: (laughs) There you go. So yeah, this is Israel out in front of Sinai. You know, I think this, the tabernacle, the original tents, you know there in that desert wilderness on the journey from slavery in Egypt to the promised lands so this is kind of the original house or dwelling that God wished them to build i want you to build a dwelling because i will be with you that was always god's constant promise i will be with you oh
1: yeah
0: yeah i know. not repeat Oh, yes, tabernacle there. The Shekinah, the glory cloud. The cl- again, that cloud that we saw at the Transfiguration, the cloud at the Ascension as well. Jesus ascending into heaven, into his glory, into the glory of God, into this life fully alive and this full vision of God, which we can't seem to experience on this earth because we'll die because it's so amazing. We can only experience, we have eternal life in us. So, so yeah, all this. Um, Jesus. Again, these images of the old covenant, you know, are just foreshadowings though, just shadows of what is to come. Jesus, who is this true dwelling of God, God who dwells with us, Shekinah, dwelling place, tabernacle, all of it all kind of connects. You know, we have the tabernacle, we have our own pillar of fire and cloud. You know, the Easter candle is meant to represent that pillar of, pillar of fire and pillar of cloud that led them all the way through their journey. We're going to come back to this journey, by the way. I think that's probably why I put it here. And um, we're going to talk a lot about that journey from slavery and death into the rest, rest with God, rest in the Promised Lands, because that's where the author of Hebrews goes. He quotes this in, this psalm. I'm actually so it's actually it's it's a psalm. It's Psalm 95, and he quotes so much of the psalm. I don't know why he didn't just write out the entire thing. Um, I'm going to read the entire thing, the entire Psalm 95, because it's actually a very key Psalm in the life of the church. So going to Psalm 95. Come, let us sing joyfully to the Lord. Cry out the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with a song of praise, joyfully sing out our Psalms. For the Lord is the great God, the great King over all the gods, whose hand holds the depths of the earth who owns the tops of the mountains, the sea and dry land belong to God, who made them for them by his hand. Come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord who made us, for he is our God and we are the people he shepherds, the sheep of his hands. And then, oh, that today you would hear his voice. Harden not your hearts as at the rebellion and the day of testing in the deserts where your ancestors tested and tried me and saw my works for 40 years. Because of this, I was provoked with that generation, and I said, they have always been of erring hearts, and they do not know my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter into my rest. So why is this psalm so important in the life of the church? It's actually the first psalm we pray every single day. Uh, When, you know, the ancient (laughs) ways of, of monks and also priests Kind of set out. I think that's my liturgy professor right there. I just took this off the internet. I think that's Father Belsol. Anyway, um, this, this way of praying, praying the Psalms of the Church. You know, when it says in the Acts of the Apostles that, you know, the early church they dedicated themselves to the teaching of the apostles, you know, namely. You know that live preaching they had of the resurrection. They dedicated themselves to uh, fellowship with one another, communion. They dedicated themselves to the breaking of the bread, to the sacraments, and they dedicated themselves to the prayers. What what they meant by the prayers was most probably praying the psalms, because Jesus prayed the psalms throughout his life. He quotes the psalms uh, sometimes in extraordinary ways. One of my favorites is on the cross. Jesus quotes Psalm twenty two. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? and if you just take that line yes it talks about how he takes on our feeling of abandonment you know our separation from god but if you read that entire psalm psalm 22 it's amazing to think about that's what the jesus is thinking about on the cross is this entire prayer you know in the psalms it's really the voice of the messiah the voice of jesus that we can hear in the psalms praying for his church. You know, praying to the Father, giving us the words to say in every kind of emotion, in every kind of state in life, where we're up, we're down, we're in, we're out, whatever we're feeling, he gives us these words to pray. And so returning, I guess, to this psalm, it's it's an invitation to come worship the Lord, to come into that dwelling place, uh, to be in right relationship to God, you know, who has prepared all things from the beginning of, you know, heaven and earth, you know, God owns all things, and he set all things in their place. So find your place in all this, you know. But then this warning, right? You know, there were those who I gave a place, but they didn't accept it. You know, those who at the rebellion, Meribah and Massa, these are these places on the road in the desert, you know, the desert road, you know, from Egypt to the promised land was full of desert. 40 years, right? They wandered in the wilderness, 40 being that number of, of preparation. You know, Jesus, who also goes through many 40s in his life, uh, these periods of preparation, total preparation, total cleansing. You know, the 40 days, 40 nights it rained as well in the time of Noah and the flood, you know, that total preparation, total cleansing. And so there was a total cleansing that happened to happen of those people because they were not willing to, you know, find their place, to know their place you know, to know their place in the part of God's glory in in his life. So the rest of this chapter is going to be very focused on this, entering into his rest. You know, those who he swore in my wrath, they shall not enter into my rest. I'll kind of end with that. You know, what does it mean for God to be angry, to be wrathful? Isn't that sin, right? Isn't it sinful for God to be angry? Well, think about the one other time we usually associate God and anger. You know, what moment from the gospels can you pull out, right? When think of one right away, right off the top of their head. Oh yeah, yeah, no, yeah, money changers. Mark was just about to flip the table, right? Right, God's anger, God's wrath is good news. You know, it's making justice. You know, anger is actually this response to injustice and our anger is bad usually because our idea of injustice is not this perfect idea of justice or injustice. But God, whose justice is perfect, who is justice itself, his wrath is actually is is good news. You know, his wrath against sin, you know, casting out sin. You know, the reason he was throwing up the money changers, they they were taking over a spot in the temple that was reserved for people to come and worship the Lord. So he's cutting off these things that are obstacles to worship. You know, again, cutting off parts of this generation that are obstacles into entering into rest. So we're going to see a lot of that cutting off, trimming down those parts of us you know, that are obstacles to God, especially using his word as a two edged sword. But before we go any farther, um, I vote. That we all get up, move around a little bit. Have a little short break and grab some of the delicious goods. That have been provided for us. Glenda and Cappy, thank you. For bringing those. And maybe just again starting to develop um, any kind of questions. We'll take a little rest again from this. We'll come back and we'll really dive into what this rest is all about and how to enter into that rest. Again, enter into that glory. You know, what does it mean for us to be fully alive a part of it has to be food uh we need food to be alive so you can go grab some some now um and again if you have any questions when we come back we can kind of start there and then go on to today and this rest that got us planned all right everyone we'll kind of get back to it finish grabbing your morsels wanted to fill your bellies with some mana from heaven indeed one of the things on the journey through the deserts uh i love the image of that desert journey um actually with my high schoolers we played a game it went terrible they they did not understand it at all might have yeah it might might be me i'm sorry but it was it was the oregon trail okay have you ever heard of the, the oregon trail video game yeah so instead of the oregon trail it was the desert trail and you know they had to Make their way from, you know, Egypt into the promised land and, you know, there's all sorts of death by dysentery and and uh, or, you know, brought, you know, serpents, you know, seraph serpents. You know, they have to collect manna instead of hunt, right? You know, they just, uh, this generation just doesn't understand. But one of the things that we were trying to learn, though, is like throughout that entire desert journey, there's so many allusions to the sacraments, really all seven sacraments can be found in that journey. You know, you have various waters, you know, being very baptismal. You have, of course, the bread from heaven. Uh, You have this sending of the spirits, you know, Moses, you know, at Sinai, you know, praying that his spirit would come upon the 70 and then two others (laughs) receive the spirit as well. Oh, that all God's people could have the spirits, you know, the sort of confirmation reading that we always read. You know, marriage is defended in many different spots. There's trials by fire. This priesthood has to be defended. He has to defend the priesthood of Levi. Uh, there's confession. You know, looking upon the, ser- the the serpent, the bronze serpent coming before them because they have sinned and they will be healed. Uh, there's all these moments of sacramental life, uh, and so that's kind of where we're going with this as well. You know, the whole just as Jesus again talking about apostle. What about this, Jesus is also the sacraments, the sacraments of God. You know, what do we mean by that? A sacrament being a visible sign that gives grace. So Jesus himself, yes, is God made visible, right? He is that visible sign, he himself. Visible sign that gives grace. And he hands it over to his church, that visible sign that gives grace of Jesus. The church has the seven sacraments, all these little visible signs that give grace. And so one of the, sa- the ways the church dispenses these this sacramental grace is in today. Uh, but today, in reference really to eternity, you know, this sort of eternal day. We celebrate throughout the year this sort of circle of Jesus' life. You know, we start with Advent, you know, the coming of Christ into the world, Christmas, his birth, and early days, the epiphany and kind of the parts of ordinary time after that, which really show, you know, Jesus making God visible, you know, showing the face of the Father. And of course, Lent leading up to the crucifixion, death, and resurrection, we're in here now. And then Easter, the time of that Holy Spirit given to us, making us a part of this story. So we become, you know, part of the story of the people of God. And we go through ordinary time, you know, which just kind of forms us in the ordinary ways of the Christian life, and we become a part of that story. And then we start it all over again. This is all part of this sort of eternal day. Take care, brothers, that none of you may have an evil and unfaithful heart. So as to forsake the living God. Encourage yourselves daily while it is still today. So that none of you may grow hardened. By the deceit of sin. Take care brothers that none of you may have an evil and unfaithful heart so as to forsake the living God. Encourage yourselves daily while it is still today so that none of you may grow hardened by the deceit of sin. There's this classic idea of the hardening of the heart. You know Pharaoh in Egypt. There's so many times when it mentions that his heart was hardened against the Israelites. You know, I think it's C.S. Lewis who talks about, you know, this hardening of the hearts. You know, you if you don't want to be hurt because love hurts. Well, you can put your heart into a box and it'll stay there and it'll grow stale and cold and hardened against everyone outside. You know, that's this, this deceit of sin. You know, the seed of Adam and Eve really in the beginning was, you know, not to trust, not to believe, not to entrust themselves to the living God but to forsake him and take for themselves to close themselves off from God to become their own God. They don't need him. They don't need relationship. They don't need love. They have themselves, but with themselves, their heart becomes hard, it becomes crusty, it becomes stone. So in response to that, God gives us a day today the day you know we're going to see a lot about what this new day means again especially in reference to the rest so I I like that a lot how do you draw a right house yikes yikes just like that apparently so so like you start here and you kind of like you make a lap and then you're right here make a lap We're kind of constantly growing, you know, not just going in circles. History isn't just one big circle that repeats itself constantly, constantly, constantly. It's going somewhere. I like that a lot. It it was all Eve until you noticed that line. Adam was with her the whole time. And what was he doing exactly? You know, hiding behind the bushes or something. Not guarding and caring for the things he was meant to guard and care for. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, yeah, that too. Yeah. It's just so human, like some of those moments, right? The woman you gave me. <laughs> so, yeah, blaming God through Eve. How many times, kind of, you know, a, a kind of a hidden blame of God. Yeah, again, forsaking the living God and closing oursel- ourselves off. You know, hardening of heart. We talked about it, just putting up this obstacle right in front of our hearts, this stone wall, right? And God who wants to kind of pierce through that. There's there's a wonderful, I guess I'll get to it later. But again, that, that water from the rock that was in the desert. Again, this is all kind of in the context of the desert journey. You know, it's also in that desert journey that they get all of their feast days, you know? Uh, The day of Passover, when they're freed from Egypt, you know, the day of Pentecost, when they receive the law, the day of tabernacles, when they're there in tents at the foot of Sinai. You know, they receive again, they receive their feasts, just like we receive our feasts as well, kind of from this journey, this story of Jesus. And again, Israel would be meant to live out that cycle year in and year out in in this today, you know, as if, again, all these things that just happened in the past. It wasn't just the past. It was the past that was still affecting them still have this bear, bearing on their future, on their present, and had a bearing on their future as well, you know, to, to follow, to be faithful, to enter this sort of eternal day, eternal day of God, God who sees all things as today, God who lives in eternity, so we're also meant sort of to live in the present, to live in the now, even as we, again, remember the past, but we actually are bringing the past into the now, we hope for the future, but the future already visits us now, when we again live in this eternal now of the church, eternal today. In the Eucharistic prayer, it talks about the past, present and future very much so as happening now, as being kind of dragged into the present, into the eternal now. Live in the moment, you know, Because they always say, you know, to the youngins, think. Good advice to the youngins, right? Live for the moment. Maybe. <laughs> not tomorrow. God is already there again. God is is eternal. He lives in this in this constant today. What day does God live in? That's what we're gonna we're gonna see. What day does he constantly live in? And that's the day we're trying to enter. Again, to enter into that day involves entering into Christ's become partners. That word partner. Is actually a much uh, much deeper word. You know, participator or partaker, you know, the Bible was written in a time of uh, (laughs) where Platonic philosophy was everywhere, you know, and, you know, Paul and his coworkers again, you know, book of Hebrew letters, the Hebrews very much coming out of same sort of tradition, you know, was very well schooled in both worlds, both the Hebrew world and the Greek world world of kind of human wisdom, the world of the wisdom of God. And so that's a very like intense word that he uses as partakers, participators in Christ. You know, very much we can see the roots of, you know, being a part of the body of Christ. It's that very intense sharing in the same life. If only we hold the beginning of the reality firm until the ends, just a little, uh, uh, a little foreshadowing here the beginning of the reality. Uh, we're gonna hear a very similar language here when Paul, when, yeah, Hebrews, I'll just say Paul, whatever. That's what the, that's what the early fathers said, oh well. When Paul defines faith as the substance of what is hoped for, the, the beginning of the reality, the evidence of things not seen, the beginning of the reality, faith being this beginning of eternal life. Faith is the beginning of eternal life. When we enter into this relationship with God and when we entrust ourselves to him, you know, it's not just that I believe that God exists or even that I believe that what God says is true. Real faith is I entrust myself to God. It's kind of three levels of faith, you know? I usually use uh, the Husker coach as an example. You know, the first level of faith is I believe that Mark Rule is now the coach of the Huskers. You know, I, I think that's a true statement, right? I, I believe that's true. Whether or not he should be or shouldn't be or, you know, whether Solich should still be or not, you know. I believe that Mark Rule is. Okay, that's kind of first level, right? But that's very basic faith. That's not real faith. Then you might say, well, I believe, you know, uh, I, I believe that... You know this new defense he's working on, maybe it'll work, okay, whatever. you know. I believe that what he says is true, okay. But it's a whole nother thing to say. I believe in coach rule. I entrust myself to him. I will do whatever he says. i I, I will work at hard at whatever I this is what we hope you know the Husker players are thinking right now. they have a they have a true kind of faith like that. You know, holding on the beginning of the reality, this faith, which is already the beginning of eternal life. Until the end. And of course that until the ends, until perfection. Yeah, oh gee. Yeah, oh gee, don't, don't, no. Come on, have a little faith.
1: That's
0: right, nope. Our faith has been purified, that's for sure, yes. We have a different kind of faith than the Huskers now. <laughs> but until the very bitter end. Um, that's why I put the cross here, this this word until the end. It's kind of used a lot in very hidden ways in the, in the letters to the Hebrews. Um, it's the very same words that Jesus utters from the cross when he says, it is finished. You know, Jesus loved us to the end, to the finish. You know, it is finished. It is perfected. A lot of times it'll say perfected until the perfect, perfect. And those are like the same word in Greek. So it's sort of the last words of Jesus. You know, he's faithful until the end. This is what faithfulness to the end looks like for us. Again, the very last words of Jesus are right. Well, it is finished into your hands. I commend my spirit, right? It is finished. And another way to translate that phrase is it is perfected. Yeah. It is brought to completion. It is brought to the end. And not as in like it's over now and there's nothing left. And in the sense of this is what it was made for. This is what we were made for. You know, we've reached our end. We've reached our goal. So there'll be that illusion a lot throughout the letter to the Hebrews of Jesus, his love to the end. Yeah, oh no. Yeah. We skip over it too much. Oh, did you look at Psalm twenty two? Yeah. <laughs> did you read it? To the end. <laughs> to the end. You must read it. Oh, thank you. <laughs> oh thank you. well thank you, thank you. I believe
1: it, I believe it. Read it to the end and you'll see what I mean.
0: So uh, I put up, you know, the little desert journey again, because we're going to be talking about that from sin and death, you know, to Mount Sinai, possible location, of course, other locations possible, the wandering in the deserts, the attempt to go into the Holy Land, but the fear, you know, that they would be, they were not strong enough, you know, that God wasn't with them to fight their battles for them. So, you know, wandering around again, just utter, Forsaken land. Until finally crossing the Jordan. At Jericho. Where they see that God indeed is fighting for them. And they take they enter into the rest into their rest. So we kind of repeat a little bit here for it is said, oh, that today you would hear his voice. Harden not your hearts as at the rebellion. Again, they grumble, they rebel. They test God all the way through here saying, wouldn't it be better if we just go back to Egypt and how much is that like us sometimes when we get set on this path to holiness, wouldn't it just be better if I didn't have to worry about all these rules and the 10 commandments and just do what I want to do, you know, wasn't life better as a slave to sin, you know, where I at least had my vegetables and my flesh pots, you know, as they say, whatever a flesh pot is, you know, are <laughs> flesh pots in Egypt so they rebel, you know, not entrusting that God has something better in mind, a better rest for them. And who were those who rebelled when they heard? Was it not all those who came out of Egypt under Moses? With whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not those who had sinned, whose corpses fell in the desert? Again, 40 years was the entire time it took for a new generation to arise, you know, that a faithful generation, a generation that would follow him. And to whom did he swear that they should not enter into his rest, if not to those who were disobedient? And we see that they could not enter for lack of faith. So, again, very Pauline, right? This, uh, yeah, God pouring out his gift of love. And really, the thing that we do so often when we sin, putting up an obstacle to that faith. You know, this hardening of our hearts, putting up an obstacle in front of him. But God will not let this be the last answer. You know, can anyone be saved then? You know, if this first generation who saw all of his wonders, you know, be, if they can't be saved, how can I be saved? Right? Well, God has an answer for that. Again, we're getting to it. That answer, of course, uh, it will be Jesus. So um, therefore, let us be on our guard while the promise of entering into his rest remains. But none of you seem to have failed. For in fact, we have received the good news, the gospel, just as they did. But the word that they heard did not profit them. They were not united in faith with those who listened. For we who believed enter into that rest, just as he has said. So there's gonna be this logic that's used where, you know, God has this desire To enter for us to enter into his rest. And yet, those first ones did not take him up on that promise. It means that it doesn't mean that God's promise has failed. It means that that promise must actually still remain. There must be that still possibility for us to enter into his rest. We still have that chance. We have that good news. But that we can also be just like them. We cannot enter into that rest, and mostly through a lack of faith. And so, again, through lack of faith, they grumbled. God gave them water from the rock. I like this image, the outpouring. Um, there's there's a striking thing about that moment though. Literally striking. Uh, Moses strikes the rock. God actually tells Moses, I will be standing in front of the rock. Strike the rock and water will pour forth. So you put that spatial image in your head. There's the rock. There's God, there's Moses, strikes the rock, which means he also strikes God. And where else do we see that striking of God and this water flowing out, but on the cross, you know, piercing through that hardness of hearts. And again,
1: I just keep skipping and skipping. Oh, yeah.
0: Overabundance. Just a little trickle. Yeah. You have to go up to the tap and kind of fill up. But no, yeah, just this overabundance. And then this is, you know, the manna like snow where Jesus, of course, again, is that true bread from heaven. So we're seeing these signs of this new day that Jesus is going to give us this new this entry into a new rest, piercing again through the hardness of hearts, giving us the gift of faith. Um, but we got to get that. Here it is. Okay, finally. woohoo! So again, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter into my rest. So what is this rest referring to? Of course. Author of Hebrews looks back. Yet his works were accomplished at the foundation of the world, for he had spoken somewhere. Again, some verse. Somewhere. It's Genesis 1. I don't know how he didn't just say, you know. <laughs> somewhere about the seventh day in, in this manner and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in the previously mentioned place, they shall not enter into my rest. So that's where I wanted to sort of draw on this idea of the seventh day, you know, the day of rest, Sabbath. You know, as was this call throughout all of Israel to enter into the rest of God. You know, every, one out of every seven days, you know, shutting off everything else. And entering only into God. The rest of the days were for creation. For working out in God's works. But the seventh day was for entering into God. And so just to kind of show that. In a very real way I look at the other six days of creation. Uh, We see this, this poetic device that is used. In which the first three days. And the second three days sort of form this chart. of Promise and fulfillment. You know, in the first day, we have. Without the right sun. And that's on. that's definitely on this day. We have this light in darkness. This. Separation. In, in a sense of life from death, you know, of light from darkness. Which creates space for a promise for something to come and fill this promise with life so this space of light and darkness on the fourth day becomes the space for fulfillment when he fills it full of the sun moon and stars again two second day you know the upper waters (laughs) and the lower waters again this separation and we might say the sky and the sea. but really, you know, you can almost think of it of of the fresh waters above, the waters like rain that come from the sky that give life, versus the waters of the sea, which usually call death, you know, cause death in the world in the ancient world, especially. You go out into the sea, you die, you no, know, versus the waters above of life. So this life and death, again, making this promise, this space of promise that is then filled with, you know life, with the birds of the. Heavens and the fish of the sea. Fish, those who dwell in death. wonder if that's why we eat fish during Lent. You know, we who dwell in the valley of death, okay. you know. You know, waiting for, you know, and by that sign of death, you know, being pointed to this new life. And then this, this third separation, again, land, dry land, you know, from the sea. Again, land being this space for life versus the sea, that space of death and of chaos. And into that space of promise, God infuses again, animals, of course, and man, he fills it.
1: So then we get to the seventh day.
0: And, you know, a lot of times we think of the seventh day as totally beyond the scheme, you know, God rests on the seventh day, From all that he had all of his works. And that that's true in a sense. You know, that again they're trying to enter simply into God. You know, the other six days are for all of his works of creation, the seventh day is to enter solely into God. But again, there's almost a language there of these this same sort of scheme where God, when he rests, he sort of creates. Another space of promise, a space that is only God, you know, that is God and nothing else where God is all in all the space that is God. And it sort of asks a question then, you know. What will happen on the eighth day? What will God fill this rest with? Right. And that's what Hebrews is asking this question again and again. They're not entering into his rest. You know, something's going to go here that we're waiting for, waiting for. God has, has this promise that Israel has been, again, you know, faithfully or unfaithfully pursuing for their whole existence. You know, and trying to enter into the Sabbath rest and to become sort of those inhabitants of the eighth day. And so, of course, you know, brothers and sisters, you know, we have a very ancient tradition of the eighth day of the week. <laughs> You know, the eighth day is referred to in the early church, of course, as, you know, that day of of Easter. The day of the Lord's resurrection, this new day of creation, of course, the eighth day is, you know, it's really the first day of the week. You know, that first Easter morn, you know, again, when God said, let there be light, he starts a new creation and there's a new inhabitant of this rest, you know, Jesus Christ. Son, yes, who is always a part of this rest, but now also in the flesh, his flesh, is the first firstborn of this new eighth day, that we that is the today, that we are called to live in, to enter into this new day. That's why we have to celebrate Easter for 50 days, right? It's not enough to celebrate for one day. We're trying to enter into that today, that new creation, that place where we inhabit his rest. We We are fulfilled, just like, you know, these first three days are fulfilled by the second three days. You know, this Easter, this resurrection, this new life, it fulfills the promise of that Sabbath rest. So that's also why, um, you know, the early church could move the day of worship from Saturday to Sunday. You think about it, that's a really big deal to move from the celebration of the Sabbath, Sabato, Saturday to celebration on Sunday, on the day the Lord rose from the dead. You know, that's kind of, that's Pope Benedict's 16th actually called that one of his favorite proofs that something actually happens on Easter Sunday, that the resurrection was true, that there would have been no other way that Jews from that period would have ever changed the day to worship God. Like that's too big of a jump for anyone to make unless something happened that caused this this new idea that we're entering, we are finally entering into God's rest. We're no longer sitting in that place of promise only on the seventh day, we live on that eighth day where we are now entering into that eternal day of the Lord.
1: Well, hopefully, yeah. Is that register?
0: Saturday was the Sabbath, yep. And again, that that movement to the 8th day is is a big deal. So, you know, we have to fudge the 10 Commandments, right? You know, no longer keep holy the Sabbath. We say keep holy the Lord's day. I mean, that's a big deal. You don't just change the 10 commandments. Something must have happened on the 8th day, on the first day of the week. You know, that totally changed the shifted this whole thing, you know, to fulfillment, not just waiting for the promise of the 7th day, but promises here.
1: Oh yes. Oh yeah, we need to. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, so Seventh-day
0: Adventists, you know. Yeah, I, I don't know like all of their beliefs, so I don't know what else. <sighs> right. And I have a feeling it's 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 probably out of enthusiasm. Usually, you know, Christ, you know, various Christian denominations there a lot of times there's enthusiasm over You know, one thing, you know, and so there might be enthusiasm there over the sanctity of God's word. You can't just change the 10 commandments, right? You know, you can't, it's, it's keep holy the Sabbath, you know, is the commandment. And so maybe missing some of these other dimensions of this new Sabbath rest that we are meant to enter into and the early church did. So I don't know their whole theology and I don't know, you know, their reasoning behind that. But yes, they, that, that is why they are called, I believe, Seventh day. Adventists. I wonder where the Adventist part comes from, you know, like Advent or like the
1: coming of Christ, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Sure.
0: And again, that just goes to show just how scandalous a move that is. <laughs> to to move the day of worship. And again, Benedict the Sixteenth loves that fact, because he's like that tells me that the early church was very convinced that the eighth day was so important. So, so again, there must be this new Sabbath rest as again, the author of Hebrews, you know, points out that this this first Sabbath was not fulfilled. You know, th- there must be something more that we're waiting for. And and again, we mentioned, this is basically an Easter homily in a way. You know, this is basically a defense for the new Passover, the new Easter. So in in a sense, this is a defense for the eighth day, the new day, the today that we are trying to enter into. So therefore, since it remains that some will enter into it and those who formerly received the good news did not enter because of disobedience. He once more sets a today, when long afterwards he spoke through David, has already quoted, "Oh that today you would hear his voice, hardened not your hearts." So using scripture there, kind of a wonderful way saying, "Okay, the, the the first people they didn't enter into the rest, so maybe the promise is just no good. The promise failed. But then later David said that there will be some who enter into that rest. So there must be this this new day, this new today, that they're going to end, that someone is going to enter into this rest. You know, this new eighth day where something new is going to happen, a new creation is going to start." Where this chart is going to be fulfilled, it's missing that last line. I uh, I never, I never thought of the pole as being in the form of a cross, but uh, you know, yeah, this is that moment from from the desert. Moses holding up the serpent in the deserts. Jesus, who will say to Nicodemus, "Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the desert, so will the Son of Man be lifted up." So they kind of, con- you know, construct or you know, envision this as, you know, a cross <laughs> and the serpent hanging on it. Which again, you're gonna see later. Mark will probably teach on, you know, Jesus who. Well, no, maybe this is somewhere in Paul. <laughs> Jesus who became sin, who knew no sin. He became. A sin offering, and so he kind of takes the form of sin of the punishment of sin, you know, takes our place on the cross, you know, looks like sin. And. And we can uh, we can go more into sin offerings kind of later in Hebrews, you know, what would the process of a sin offering was what it meant to take away sins in in old Israel and then for the new.
1: Ah, uh, yes. Oh, OK. See, I was thinking 730. Well, let me end. Yeah, <laughs> you all. Don't want anybody feeling they're held captive.
0: Held captive. Uh, yes. Ah, uh, yes. Well, you know that that is definitely a good place. To kind of stop our focus, because actually it totally changes after that. So, <laughs> this sort of new Sabbath rest that we are, we are called to again. Um, it says, "I'll just end with this." You know, Joshua, which in the Greek is actually Jesus. You know, Joshua's name is Jesus. It's the same name, um, which is really confusing. Uh, the Vulgate sort of fixed that for us by distinguishing the two. But uh, it's funny when Hebrew says Josh. What says? Now, if Jesus had given them rest and he's referring to the first Jesus, to Joshua, this is going to be so confusing, right? The next time he refers to Jesus, he calls Jesus the son of God. Where is that? The next time. Jesus, the son of God. So he's referring to the first Jesus here and then the second Jesus, Jesus, the son of God. You know, the true Jesus, Jesus we think of. Uh, yeah, common enough. Common enough. Josh, I mean, Joshua, you know, people names God Saves, you know, it's a good idea to name your kid God Saves. And it makes sense that this was Joshua's name, right? Because he leads them. He's the one who actually brings them across the river, through the river, into the promised land. So Jesus will be the one who actually brings us across the Jordan River, the river, also the river of death, and into the promised land of heaven. So again, this first rest you know failed <laughs> they had tons of war they had to fight you know Jericho and everyone else but there was you know sort of another there that would come there was this moment when Joshua actually meets the Lord captain of the Lord of hosts and the captain again says take off your sandals for the ground on which you stand is holy ground the same words that were said from the burning bush again whenever god speaks in the old testament we sort of infer that it's the word of god jesus who is speaking there so there's this new Joshua that is to come. So let's pray and I'll send you on a blessing to uh, again, strive to enter into the Lord's rest into that Easter day that has been again promised and revealed and fulfilled for all of us. In the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord Jesus Christ. You are risen from the dead never to die no more. You raise our humanity fallen in sin to hope for eternal life. So help us to remain in you. Through death and resurrection, we may live eternal in that eighth day, that new creation. For God will be all in all. We ask this in your holy name. Amen. May the Lord be with you. Almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.